ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, welcome to Big Ideas. I'm Natasha Mitchell. When a child is born, that question gets asked. Are they a girl or a boy? But what if you're born with a variation or a difference of sex development, also known as an intersex variation? So you might carry a Y or a male chromosome but have some typical female physical features or have two X or female chromosomes but show some typical male physical features. Now, there are a whole range of these variations and they manifest differently in different people. In some cases, children are given surgery and lifelong hormone treatments. But now a bill tabled in the ACT Parliament could limit the scope of what treatments parents can seek for their children. The law's been hard fought for by intersex activists who argue unnecessary medical interventions should be delayed so the human rights of the child to bodily autonomy is respected. Others argue that delaying some treatments could do harm, both physical and psychosocial, and that the law is heavy-handed and government overreach. On Big Ideas today, the science, law and lived experience of being intersex. Yeah, well, you know, I'm someone that was uh, born with a difference of sex development, but I don't identify as intersex. And so for me, you know, I, I could say I identify as about 10 things, probably the top of which is Melbourneian, the second of which is Western Bulldog supporter, and probably way down the list there is intersex. But recently, you know, I've been tuning into the media, I've been reading stories and uh, listening to the ABC, and I've been hearing stories from the intersex community that don't necessarily represent my own personal perspective. So I thought, well, it might be time for me to, you know, talk a little bit about my experience and what I think. It's a global community that is concerned. And we know that doctors in Australia are talking with doctors overseas. We know that doctors in Australia go overseas and do training about how to do the surgeries. We know there's a lot of things going on here mm. that don't get talked about or critiqued for so long. So much is behind closed doors and the data is held and protected and not shared openly that it's creating these assumptions when really it's the people who are living this every day. That's Dr Agli Zavros Orr, a lecturer in education at Federation University. Agli was on the Victorian government's Intersex Advisory Group and is on the board of Intersex Human Rights Australia. And Jenny Smith, who is a PhD candidate in philosophy and a full-time corporate executive manager. This is the first time Jenny's spoken publicly about her experience. Also joining me at the Science Gallery Melbourne, Professor Sonia Grover, Director of the Department of Paediatric and Adolescent Gynaecology the Royal Children's Hospital Melbourne, and Professor Andrew Sinclair, a geneticist and Deputy Director of the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. And just a heads up, today's program has details of body parts and surgical procedures that you may or may not want little ears to hear. Andrew Sinclair, there's been this story that we tell ourselves about the biology of sex, that two X chromosomes equals biological female, that an X and a Y equals a biological male. In reality, is the biology of sex a whole lot more complicated than that? It is much more complicated than that. That's certainly the dogma that sets it out. So we, we know that we all start off in a, in a fetus as no, neither male nor female. We're what we call bipotential. And we think of sex determination as really what's the primary thing that's being developed is the, is the gonad, whether it becomes a testis or an ovary. So at about six weeks, we're this indeterminate sex. But at that point, one of the, if you've got a Y chromosome, we know there's a gene on that Y chromosome that causes the indifferent or bipotential gonad to become a testis. Once that forms at about six weeks, it starts pumping out male hormones like testosterone and causing the secondary sexual characteristics that you define as a normal male. If you don't have a Y chromosome and you don't have that particular little gene, then the gonad will automatically develop as an ovary and start pumping out female hormones and give you the female sort of phenotype and appearance. So you discovered the SRY gene. How significant was that, that gene? That's going back 33 years now to 1990. Um, it was a big breakthrough because we didn't understand what it was on the Y chromosome that was causing that early gonad to develop into a testis. And it was by looking 
and working with individuals uh, that had differences in sex development that allowed us to pinpoint that gene. So we looked particularly at an XX individual who had developed testis and had a male appearance. And by examining what I did back then was examine their X and Y chromosome. They had a tiny, tiny fraction of the Y chromosome stuck on their X. And by narrowing it down to that very, very small region, I was able to identify this little gene in there, which I could show was just turned on in the testis and caused testis in that particular individual. And it turned out to be a gene which we call the SRY gene for sex-determining region on the Y gene. And that's the one that became the testis-determining factor. So that kicks in really early and makes a testis. So let's explain what role that gene can play in the wide variety of differences in sexual development that you now see. Yeah, absolutely. So if the SRY gene there is there and it's intact, you get a, a, a testis. But in, if there are variations within the gene, say if there are little point mutations in the gene itself, then the testis may not develop properly or it may not develop at all. And so you can end up being an individual with an X and Y chromosome, but you don't have a testis being formed and you can in fact not produce the hormones and so you have a female appearance. And there can be a whole range of variations in between too. So there's enormous variation out there and that's I think something I've learned over the 30 years that there's a vast array of, of variants across the whole sp spectrum, both in humans, but also across the whole animal kingdom really. It's really quite remarkable and what we've learned these little genes make big changes in people that impact their whole existence within society. Just give us a sense of the variation because it is mammoth. It is, absolutely. So, I mean, you can see everything from what we consider um, in terms of genitalia all the way from classical female through to classical male and everything in between. If you can imagine a whole spectrum, you can see the, the entire spectrum. And I've certainly experienced that um, in my research over the 30 years. Mm. So people with the lived experience of some of these conditions are, are in a sense your co-researchers. Absolutely, and have been over, over that time. And I think I've learned that, that there is that spectrum. And then, in fact, we impose, as humans, we like to put people in boxes and call them male or female. That's a societal construct we put over this, what is a biological spectrum of sex differences. Now, that's a very important thing you say, though. We, we don't think of a variation when we talk socially about biological sex. The reality is quite different. Absolutely. The, the biological reality is that there's enormous variation out there. No one really sits completely in a male-female box. We just like to think of people that way and construct society around that simple um, view of the world. Agli Zavrosor, what was going on for you when you first found out that you had an intersex condition? Tell us about, take us back to you mm. at age 17. Mm. And in, I mean, that's a, that's a hard age to hear this sort of information mm. in the first place, isn't it? Because it's such an age of transition. Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting sitting here listening to a scientist talk about my body. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what yes. our lived experience is about. We generally hear about our bodies, mm. but for me, it sort of just came out of left field, really. It wasn't something we were waiting for, expecting. It was just a point in time where the biology of the body was going to do something different. So what was it, happening? Well, I didn't have my periods, which is the, the milestone for a young girl, is that they have their periods, they develop secondary characteristics, their body shape changes, things like that. And, you know, I think family, especially in particular communities, it's noticed that the body is not changing, it's not shifting from its appearance as a child to its appearance or its transition into becoming an adult. And so for me, that's when questions were started and investigations began um, to find out exactly what was happening. Mm. So, um, and it was an overnight shift in what you know about your body to then what your body, what you learned your body is not going to be and what it's potentially going to be. So what were you you told? And you you had your parents there, your parents were Greek migrants. Yeah. They didn't have a lot of English. Mm. And so you were their mediator in a sense. Yeah, so it's, it's a long, complex journey. And I suppose part of that story sits with my parents. But, you know, not having English was one of the challenges of trying to 
deal with the language around what happens to bodies and bodies biology. And so, and I have a broken memory of this space as you would um, appreciate because it is for a young person mm. at that age, a traumatizing experience to be moved into a medical model, a medical process, which is quite invasive. It's about poking, it's about testing, it's about lots of questions. Um, so the thing that just sat with me is the doctor saying to me, and I had to translate for my parents, like a boy, but not a boy. And so the, and this is one of the tensions I think and probably in time, we've shifted a little bit, but there's still that ignorance about the language we use to talk mm, about this mm. stuff. So it was just a process of then almost a moral panic, a medical moral panic of, oh my God, what's happening? We've got to fix you. Yes, we're going to fix you. That's and so what it. did they do? Well, it was an exploratory operation to start off with. So tissue was taken, sent to the mainland because this was in Tassie sent to the mainland, then it was the information came back. We received a call, we needed to go in. She needs to have an operation because the thing that was a threat was um, cancer. Because yeah? so this what, was the thing. what did they diagnose you as, as experiencing? Well, it was at that time, they just said I had cancerous ovaries. I think they just assumed, the doctor assumed um, he wasn't a specialist. He had, I don't think his knowledge was there in to sort of really know how to speak about it in the same way that Andrew has just spoken. But it was just, um, yeah, cancer, we need to remove it, preservation of life, um, and then hormone replacement therapy, as well as... Into um, adult life. So you continued taking that well yeah, into your adult right, life. Yeah. HRT. Well, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So So this was hormones in or this was essentially uh, yeah. female hormones that yeah. you were taking. Yeah. So generally the basic pill that people take for contraception. Yeah. So a pretty confusing time yeah. for you. Yeah. Um it was confusing, but the confusion is not so much about having a body with a variation in sex characteristics. The confusion came with all of the other parts, the lack of information, the secrecy, uh, the stigma, the hush-hush, don't talk about it. Were you told about the long-term implications no, of your condition? No, nothing, nothing. There was nothing. It would nothing. affect your fertility. I, I learned about it on my own. We were told that we could have, I could have babies if I had a, a sorry, um, a donor, an egg donor, but even that was traumatic, yeah. So you so, had a uterus. Yes. But yeah. you, you didn't well, have your own uh, eggs. Yeah, sort of a rudimentary, I mean. Uh, so, Professor Sonia Grover, so you're shaking your head because what, I mean, what you're hearing is an experience that some people say that they had and, and certainly if you look at the Human Rights Commission report around um, people's experience of not being told enough information or the right information about what they're experiencing. How do you hear Agley's experience as a clinician? I'm horrified and, you know, but I have to acknowledge, as you did, that this happened interstate with somebody who didn't know very much. And, you know, even today I get anxious if a GP wants to break bad news because, goodness, it's challenging to break bad news. And it it needs to be given and done with lots of information. It needs to, and, and therefore what I'm sitting here and hoping is that your experience is no longer repeated and um, it shouldn't be repeated. Unfortunately not. So every time I go to a GP, I'm educating them. Yeah. yeah. We need more resources in place to support that. But if you were presenting as a 17-year-old to the children's hospital now, I do not think that the care you had experienced is the care that we would be offering now. How do you view how your predecessors might have handled sex variations like this? So there are things that were done that we didn't know and I say we in a medical sense, so that 
there is concern that in XY gonadal dysgenesis that there is a 30% risk of cancer. And that cancer can occur at the age of six months. It may never occur, but we wouldn't be pushing you to surgery now and we, you know, we will sit and have discussions over a year or two or three or four until somebody's ready. But in the meantime, we're sitting on our hands fingers crossed that I hope these gonads don't become malignant whilst we're waiting. So just to waiting. clarify what was going on here, that you had a, a, a you, in this, in a situation you might have a girl that has been assuming that they were a girl, um, but they do have gonads that haven't become testes, but they may become cancerous at some Correct. stage. Why? Because they're missing the information to form properly and they're missing the information to make testosterone and they're also missing the information to make the uterus disappear because if you're going to develop into male, have male characteristics, you don't have a uterus. And so you need a special substance to make the uterus go away. Gonads in this context and the ones which have the highest, a high risk for malignancy have no function. They have no fertility potential and they have no hormonal production. And so, as I said, we're sitting there with our fingers crossed that the opportunity to remove those gonads occurs before they become cancerous. But we're also trying to give the family as much possible time to absorb the information associated with the diagnosis. And we have a team of people involved. You know, the geneticists are great with some of it. The endocrinologists are great with some of us. Me as a gynecologist is thinking also about sexual function. And I smiled with the bit about the rudimentary uterus. You had a gorgeous uterus. It just <laughs> hadn't had oestrogen. And so it was little. That's what every uterus is like if, before it's had oestrogen. So we've got a team of people to try and pick up all the bits. And we have a coordinator who's trying to make sure that all the bits are being picked up. So Fortunately, I think a 17-year-old presenting with a diagnosis like yours today would get quite different care, although the outcome of gonads probably do need to be removed because there is a cancer risk, it still sits there. Well, we'll come back to whether they need to be removed or not a little bit later, but um, what sorts of treatments or surgeries are responding to what range of conditions? Talk us through the sorts, the range of conditions that people might present with and what sorts of treatments and surgeries are considered. So at one end of the spectrum, we have a range of conditions where gonads are not functioning. And so therefore it could be someone with XX chromosomes, but ovaries have just menopaused at the age of five or 10 or never did anything or XY. So there can be hormonal failure to occur. There can be conditions where the hormones being produced, but the, the body doesn't respond. So there's a, a cluster of diagnosis called androgen insensitivity syndrome. And so that group of people can look like women. They don't have a uterus. They've got testes. Testes are producing hormones, but they don't respond to testosterone. Then you can have a range of conditions, another set where there's a hormonal thing happening where the body can't make a hormone and because it's desperately trying to make steroids and it can't, it mm. turns the corner and turns them into androgens. So you can have little girls who are born with quite virilised, masculinised if I can use that expression, external genitalia, they've got ovaries, they've got a uterus, they've got a vagina, but some of their... But their clitoris might be a bit bigger extra than, large or yep, longer. Yep. Yeah. They desperately need hormones to keep them alive, the, but not sex hormones to keep them alive. They need hormones to make sure they don't die from an adrenal crisis. You know, they get, they get gastro and they can die. So they need hormonal supplements to keep them healthy. And in some parts of the world, they do die. And then we've got a set of conditions where people are born with their anatomy just didn't form properly. The bladder just failed to close and your belly, below your belly button's just open to the world and you've got a bladder open to the world. Now, in that process, your genitals will also look a little bit different because your urethra didn't close, your penis, if you've got one, didn't really. So that, there's that. And, and I must say that there's a range of other diagnoses that have been picked up in the ACT legislation that include undescended testes, which is relatively common, or hypospadias, which is even more common. So that's where the, the, the wee doesn't come out the tip of the penis, but could come out halfway 
down the penis mm. or at the base of the penis, which means that little boys can't stand up to piss. Now, you can say that does that matter. Well, dad stands up to piss, brother stands up to piss. Excuse the language. Am I allowed that language? I on think radio? you can get away with Good. that. Um, and all the boys at school stand up. And yet, so where, so these boys, if you were going to not do a surgery, wouldn't be able to stand up to piss. So, and under centre testes, well, there's actually great evidence to say that if you don't correct that early, you actually are losing fertility. Ah, there's more to talk about there, but there's a range of operations, aren't there? I mean, you might reduce someone's clitoris size um, and you might hide an enlarged clitoris behind a a fold of skin. You might remove undeveloped gonads, as you've explained. You might reduce the size of the labia minora. You might turn a micro penis into a vagina. I mean, there's a whole range of different possible procedures. And so what, what I'm interested to know is how do you assess whether a procedure needs to occur or whether hormones need to be given to a child? It's done on a very, very individual basis because we've already described an enormous spectrum of diagnoses. So there's no way I can say, well, this is what we do because what I would do for one person is something quite different for someone else. And it's also so dependent on the family and where the family sits with this because this child is part of a family and those parents are about to make all sorts of decisions for this child. They're going to decide which school they go to, they're going to decide which kinder they go to, they're going to decide all sorts of things. And if they live in a setting, a community, an extended family where they think and feel strongly that the genitals do make an enormous difference to can this child even go to kinder, then then the family matters. Andrew Sinclair. Yeah, I was just going to say, so the variation that, that Sonia's described, even within one syndrome, if you like, the androgen sensitivity one is a good example. So there are genes that affect the, um, that cause the androgen receptor to develop, but um, they can be variations within that gene in different places. So sometimes you can get complete androgen sensitivity whereby the body can't use any testosterone, or you can get, if the variation is a different part of the gene, it might just cause partial androgen sensitivity, so it can partially use the androgen. So even with any any one of those conditions that's on described, there's enormous variation, which I say is underpinned by the genes as well. So you do have to look at each individual uh, on their own merits. So let's come to Jenny Smith and your very individual experience, but you did have androgen insensitivity. Partial androgen partial. insensitivity so syndrome. Just, just take us back. So you were much younger than Agley. You were eight. Mm. So what was happening for you that made you end up having to go to the doctor? Well, first of all, can I just say, Agley, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And uh, it's really important that you've shared your story uh, tonight because I'll probably share one that's a little different. I think with differences, we can start to learn from each other. Um, uh, so so my, my parents took me home from the hospital like a normal little girl. Um, it wasn't until I was about seven or eight, I started to have some medical complications, things like um, repeating urinary tract infections. Uh, and that led them to uh, the Royal Children's Hospital. And after a series of tests, I was diagnosed as having androgen insensitivity syndrome. I thank God that I grew up just down the road from the Royal Children's Hospital. And the first doctor that my parents were able to see was a specialist who was deeply knowledgeable and trained um, about differences of sex development and had a lot of experience in working with parents and children that uh, had various conditions. They were given a lot of uh, support and advice and uh, I think I started hormone replacement therapy at the age of 11 so I started taking oestrogen like Agley. So what did that mean for you? Not much (laughs) and this is the this is the the nuance I suppose that you know I'm desperate to get to right because I didn't have a traumatic experience because I didn't go through what you had to go through translating for your parents who didn't speak a lot of English, being diagnosed at 17 with a whole range of expectations about the life that you were going to lead or not or, you know, that sort of stuff. You know, I learned about my condition at the same time that I learned about the birds and the bees. Mm. So for me, I never had an experience of expecting to get a period or expecting to go through puberty as, you know, uh, one of, you know, I was going to say a normal little girl, right? So 
my experience was not traumatic at all. And at the age of 11, um, I started taking hormone replacement therapy. Now, so did you have a choice? Were you part no. of the conversation? Was oh, your... I was part of the conversation for sure. And I'm sure my parents, you know, were listening to me and, and taking cues from who I was as a person. But my parents had to make that decision on my behalf. I don't think that you could say in most cases that an 11 year old would be able to uh, consent to, you know, having hormone replacement therapy or indeed you know, consent to some other medical interventions uh, earlier. So, so you had surgery as well. Uh, I'd prefer to say that I had a range of medical okay, interventions, okay. Yep. Um, including you know hormone replacement therapy, which continues to this which day. Which continues, yeah. So, you know, time is of the essence. You know, if I didn't have hormone replacement therapy as I was coming into puberty, I absolutely would have developed secondary sex characteristics of male type, right? I would have got a deeper voice, muscles like a like a, a man, you know, hair on the upper lip and all of those sorts of things. And I'm really, really thankful that I didn't go through that experience. I'm really thankful that I was able to develop through puberty like my girlfriends and that from the outside, no one would have known that I had androgen insensitivity syndrome. And that enabled me to, as I said before, you know, not make this condition a very important part of my life. And therefore today I sit in front of you, not necessarily identifying as intersex or with the intersex community. I can go months without thinking um, that this is part of who I am, part of my identity. And, and for me, there's an enormous amount of freedom in that. It has meant a lot of freedom to discover who I want to be in the world without being sort of necessarily tied to a particular idea of, of, of who someone thinks that I am. Really interesting that you bring up the notion of freedom. Agli Zavros Hoare, freedom is also a, a big part of the story of the intersex activist movement. And at a certain point in your adult life, you found that community of activists. Tell us about that decision to become publicly vocal about the freedoms of children to have agency around what medical interventions they experience. Yeah. And I think there's a few things that need to be clarified is I, I don't live my life thinking every waking moment about being intersex. In fact, I think the word intersex is in and of itself problematic and it's been debated. I think the topic here is it's about voice and agency and information. And it's not something that's back then. It's not happening now. And we have enough stories. And the ABC aired a story recently, Noah's story, where a very young person experienced not things different to what I did with his family. The family themselves experienced the same things that my parents did. It wasn't back then. It is still happening. I think the medical model is important. I don't advocate that we stop surgeries, but it has to be done in a way that it is um, with information. Personal informed consent is everyone's right. I often hear that children don't have voices. As an early childhood educator, I've talked to the youngest of babies. Changing nappies, we work with you know, engaging the individual, um, making, giving time to the individual. And let's just bring um, it back though to um, Intersex Human Rights Australia. Absolutely, so what's and that's where I'm the going. Heart so, of yeah. Intersex Human Rights Australia's advocacy. What, what is the mission? Personal informed consent for the right of the individual to know what is going to happen to them and to have a voice in that. Because what we hear is that. Choices have been made either by parents, by doctors, um, without the individual knowing. And so... And what have been some of the consequences, the consequences of, of, of not that, being involved in an informed way? You know, not knowing yourself, not knowing what you would have chosen for yourself. That right is taken away. It's saying that who is at the centre of this? And it's the child. 
we should get tangible here. So this is, for example, if someone is uh, has an ambig ambiguous biological sex uh, because yeah. of one of these conditions and then they are surgically assigned a sex yeah. and then they grow up not feeling like that sex is of who they are, yeah. then that can cause a dramatic disconnect for that, for that adult. It's not just the disconnect. It's having someone having done things to your body that are things that you may have information about. You may have some terms that have been bandied around, but not clear information. So it sets a person at risk in terms of then wondering, asking questions. Why am I taking the hormones? You know, do I have to take the hormones? Do I have to take them for the rest of my life? What if I stop taking them? The fear of even just cancer and having death looming at any age is traumatizing. And even if that's not shared, you experience that trauma secondary from what your parents have experienced receiving that information. Um, and it's done at a point where people are still figuring out who am I? What is this body that I've inherited? And what is it that I want of this body as I grow up? Andrew Sinclair, you think genetic information can be very empowering I for mm -hmm. individuals and their families. Certainly had that feedback, yes. I think it is. I mean, there's one argument that it pathologises people, but I think the reverse. I think it actually empowers. It says, look, this is, you know, the androgen receptor is doing this for me. That's why I am the way I am. I think it's, I certainly had that feedback from individuals and families. This discussion's happening in the context of major legislative change that has been tabled in the ACT, the Variation in Sex Characteristics Restricted Medical Treatment Act. It's just been tabled, it's about to be discussed in the ACT Parliament, this bill. And, and this, as it stands, would prohibit non-essential medical treatments or surgery for children and adolescents born intersex or with differences of sex development. This is a a major piece of legislation that could have an impact on the lives of every one of, of you, your working lives, your personal lives. And so I wonder, Jenny, how you respond to that possibility that you had your hand up. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, I mean we can talk about the legislation as well. And I certainly hear what Agley's saying. And I think the intersex community has been uh, very vocal and, and very good at getting some of those points across because there are definitely people in the intersex community that have had difficult relationships with the medical profession and they hold a, a viewpoint around that some of those medical interventions are both completely regrettable and also trauma inducing. Well and, and they were also made to feel as, as if their body was a problem. There was shame and there was stigma yeah, and right. even from the medical profession itself. Right, exactly and from that shame comes, we have to move into the movement of pride, right? Because we have to uh, move past shame and, and to get to somewhere, uh, to get to a better place, right? And so, of course, people that have been through traumatising, shameful experiences will want to find a community of people that have had similar experiences, right? And they will seek to make the world a better place. They will seek to change legislation or change things so that that never happens to anyone else. I am a person, you know, living with a difference of sex development, but I'm also a philosopher. And so the way that I think about it is not so black and white, not so, dare I say, you know, binary. <laughs> um, for every right that you are seeking to give, you're also taking rights away. For every harm that you are seeking to stop, you are also potentially introducing other harms. So what are your concerns about the possible harms of this legislation? Well, for example, um, if I were born in the ACT today with the very condition that I have, my parents would not be able to consent to some of the medical interventions that I had. I am a person that sits here having zero regrets that my parents made the decisions that they did. And I also believe that if they were not able to make those decisions on my behalf and I had to wait until I was 16, 17, 18 years of age, or even worse, if they had to go in front of a panel to argue why they should be able to make decisions on behalf of their own child. Which is how the that, legislation will work. Exactly. 
which is exactly what I believe that I would come to regret later. So what I'm trying to um, do here is just pull a little bit of nuance into the debate. So the right for you to not disclose would be taken away Precisely. That from freedom you by that this I legislation. Agley. That's actually not right. It's actually much more nuanced than that. It's actually not about taking rights away. It's about reinforcing a balance of rights. So, um, and I hear what you're saying. And I, I, I suppose one of the things that I'm really grateful is that we have this space mm. to talk about this and to tease it out and look at the nuances. It's not about taking rights away from parents it's about bringing people to the table to have a conversation about what the best course of action is and if we can buy time. So, Sonia, I was really, um, I really was heartened hearing that in your work, you're buying time with families, you're consulting, but that's not always the case. So we know from doctors who have spoken up that it's not a standardised space the experiences of individuals is not the same as maybe what Sonia gives individuals. But, but you can't we... legislate to make doctors be better doctors, right? Right. I mean, what you're trying to do here, it's, it's, it's like hitting a problem with a big hammer when actually what we should be doing is putting more education, more resources, uh, more support to families and allowing them to make the decisions that they feel is right for their child. I understand where the desire for the legislation is coming from. Well, it's, it's coming putting the rights of the child, the yeah. human rights of the child. But what rights, right? Okay, the right to be free from a potential feeling in the future that I might come to regret something that was done on my behalf that I didn't consent to. What about the right to be free from the psychosocial harm that might come from an 11 or 12-year-old girl who has lived her entire life as a little girl, who is friends with lots of other little girls who are about to go through puberty and all of a sudden she starts developing secondary sex characteristics of a male. And the psychosocial harm that comes from that is quite significant. The legislation specifically prohibits the panel from making decisions on the basis of the extent to which she will go through psychosocial harm. It says the panel cannot make decisions on the basis of whether she will be bullied or harassed or made to feel excluded. I think that's quite an overstep. I think that's a serious overstep. Because that, and that's partly because there's concern that the evidence for withholding treatment, that the harms from withholding treatment is incomplete. Sonia Grover. Absolutely. We, we just don't have the evidence with regard to withholding treatment. So um, in some respects... So isn't the precautionary approach approach that this legislation is asking for uh, a, a good thing? Doesn't that then make consent a much clearer process? If I was about to, to do an experiment where I wanted to completely change medical care and drop what I was doing, which has been shown overall to be reasonably successful, and you want me to run a model of care which does not do those things, then I would have to put that through a research and ethics committee and have, you know, prospective approval for that process. We're about to do an experiment where we actually don't know what the consequences are to the family, to the child, the the ongoing anxiety about, well, all right, let's leave the, the gonads in there, but we'll have to scan every year because I'm sorry, I am actually anxious about, you know, this child developing cancer. What is the impact of annual scanning and that anxiety on the family? So, so there are layers in here of repercussions that we actually don't know. So the, the legislation that is proposed, the bill that's proposed says it will prohibit non-essential medical treatments or surgery. So what do you deem to be essential? And what do you deem to be something that can wait and allow the course of time to then allow the child to become an agent in their own decision? So following discussion with families to the point where they understand where we're worried about malignancy risk. These gonads are non-functioning, no hormones, no fertility. And for them to feel comfortable and be able to accept that. And as I said, we've had a six-month-old develop a cancer and require follow-up treatment. So that's, that's 
that's relatively straightforward. We're, we're left with a range of diagnoses where surgical things have been done to boys with hypospadia, so where they can't stand up to piss. Now, what do we know about if you delay surgery? And so when I speak to the urologists, the urologists say, well, I'm sorry, it's a far more difficult operation to do. It's actually far more complicated for a 12, 13, 14 year old boy to have this done because unfortunately he'll get erections and he's actually just got sutures in his penis and it's, you know, it's, it's a much more complicated, difficult operation, not just from a surgical point of view, but from the child, the young man's perspective. So you're saying this is your reasoning for earlier intervention rather than later. Andrew Sinclair, what's your feeling about this legislation? As a geneticist, you are working yeah. with clinicians and you're working with patients in various ways. Well, I think the discussion we've heard today is that there's a huge variation out there, that these conditions are very complex. And the law, I think, is a very blunt, unsophisticated instrument for dealing with something as complex as this and I would worry that this is another social construct we're putting on this biological variation, if you like, and there might, <clears throat> might well be unintended consequences that come from this, this legislation that doesn't capture the nuances that we've heard tonight. What sorts of unintended consequences might you imagine? <clears throat> Whether some group is allowed to have surgery or not allowed to have surgery, the definitions of people that are being used. As I described with the androgen, uh, the androgen receptor, there's a huge variation there whether or not there should be surgery there or not, I think could get captured by the legislation inappropriately. So I think it's, it's just a very blunt instrument that, that doesn't sit well with this complexity. Sonia Grover, and then I'll come to you, Agley. <laughs> it's, it's very interesting, isn't it, that we're not allowed to do any genital surgery at all. We're allowed to do male circumcision. Now, that is driven entirely on social grounds. And there are enough people who regret their circumcisions and yet we don't include that under this legislation. You know, there is no medical indication for doing a male circumcision. So why do we let that one through? I mean, if we're going to be consistent, then let's be consistent and let's include male circumcision in this legislation. Agli Zavrosol, how are you hearing this conversation? As, as someone who has been very supportive of this bill being tabled and, and you and your activist community have been mm. involved in the conversations that have informed the development of this legislation and also you're in the state of Victoria. A parallel conversation is, is going to be happening here in Victoria as yeah. well that might in fact table a similar sort of bill mm. that the ACT has, has well, tabled. It's been yeah, it's been happening in Victoria for decades and it's progressed but it's, um, you know, it's different states, different processes. But I've not heard anything tonight that says to me that we should not have this legislation. In fact, it's confirmed for me why this legislation is important, because it's about putting the power back to the people whose bodies it is about. You know, we could bring scenarios in and stories of, you know, different cases for this and that. We're not negating that in any way, shape or form. We're actually wanting the conversation to be open, transparent, for doctors to be accountable, for there to be a standard, for there to be a panel in the circumstances where people don't have the language or the knowledge to be supported to figure out the science, the medicine, the lived experience and to make the best decisions. At the moment, a lot of it is behind closed doors. And so the problems we see is we get the other side. We know that individuals who are going through this surgery are not getting access to peer support. Why is that the case? So the support of others who have had a lived Absolutely. experience of a, of a similar condition. Both people like Jenny and myself. Mm. Um, and within the intersex community, we don't just have people who are I didn't want surgery, surgery was bad for me. We have people who, have act, who are actually, you know, sort of appreciative of the choices that doctors made, but it was made under circumstances where they were included, that they felt the information was there across the lifespan, not just at critical points when doctors have to make decisions. And so it's not just a momentary situation, it's a whole lifespan. We need a consistent approach. We need to know that people's voices are going to be heard. So great, Sonia, that you're hearing people's voices, but not everyone's doing that. It um, does criminalise. Yeah. If people in the ACT seek to 
receive treatment or a medical intervention or surgery in yeah. another state, in another jurisdiction, it will criminalise that, that act. And that puts parents and clinicians into a very complex legal situation, doesn't mm. it? Well, it's and that's one of the parts that I suppose we need to be thinking about, you know, the impacts of the legislation across the board. And so I think this legislation is really important. It's not something that's happened lightly. There's been a lot of experts um, mm. that have spoken into this space. What is the cost of, in your mind, of, of legislation like this not being enabled? Just the same of what's been happening. Jenny Smith? One thing that we're all agreed on is that we want what's best for children born Absolutely. with differences of sex development. There is no, you know, there is there is no difference there. Um, I think where we differ is what's the best way uh, to get that. I do deeply worry that we're turning or confusing clinicians for people that don't care. The idea, the very idea of turning clinicians or mums and dads into criminals for wanting to do what's best for their child is, 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 is frankly alarming. And I think a better way to go would be more resources, more education, more support, more voices. Uh, and I, I but don't you, know, you also need legislation there to protect children? Well, look, I can't think of another area where parents and clinicians experienced professionals. I mean, Sonia, you have 30 years experience. I've, I've aged you there, sorry. <laughs> you have many decades experience in this. I mean, we're sitting on a panel with the man that discovered the bloody gene, for God's sake. I mean, where are these voices in this debate? Because as far as I understand, neither of those two extremely intelligent, extremely well-read people that deeply care for people with DSD Differences in, form, in sex development. Sorry, want this legislation in the form that's presented. And I may say uh, there are the majority of people with born with differences of sex development do not identify as intersex. And I do worry about where their voices are. If they're anything like me, they learned about the ACT legislation on a radio program about two weeks ago. And no one rang me up or asked for my opinion because I'm not in the community. I'm not on Twitter. I don't know where we where we get these extra voices into the conversation and, and get it to a place where it can be, you know, more nuanced. Agley. I think it's really important that we don't create a moral panic mm. around criminalisation. Fair enough. Um, I think that's really concerning. And I've been in the room with, in the Victorian government with the Intersex Expert Advisory Group, and Sonia's been in that space as well, where we have tried to develop a nuanced conversation. It's not about a moral panic. It's not about treating individuals as, you know, the, the thing of science. We are human beings. And human rights is about just that, human rights. Everyone in this room has a human right to determine what happens to their body. And that's ultimately, and I don't want to pick on parents or doctors or scientists or anyone. It's about children and protecting children in all circumstances. And often it's, you know, the intersex community is seen as a group. It's actually a whole community of people, we have ethicists, we have doctors, we have, you know, lawyers, all sorts of people who have been thinking about this space for a very, very angles. long time yeah. and from very different angles. They've read widely across all the different spaces, considered all the different parts. Is it perfect? I don't know because I think we're still debating and figuring it out. I think its benefits are far greater than what... Um, people assume. Um, and it means that it's going to position doctors, scientists, people with lived experience differently in this space. Uh, Sonia Grover, your response as a I clinician. Mean, well, I, I come back to the caring for people with these conditions, caring for their families is complex. And when we have a multidisciplinary team that includes ethicists on that committee meeting and we will have 20 if not 30 people and there is lots of discussion. And do you have 
people with intersex conditions on those committees as well? No. Because this is the nature of how yep, yep. expertise gets quarantined. And so people That's, with lived experience have been calling for so uh, a role we, in these committees. So we acknowledge that. We also acknowledge that if we're going to ask people to come in to do that work, we need to pay them. And therefore it's acknowledging so that we need... them. <laughs> yes. So, so resources around providing the whole... Con you know, all of this is where we're limited. And, but I'm very conscious that when we talk about human rights, it's got an S on the end. And therefore, we're not just talking, I mean, the child has many rights. And it's sure, it's to do with ensuring future fertility, it's ensuring future sexual pleasure, it's ensuring that their parents have some say in their well-being, it's ensuring that their psychosocial outcomes are optimised. So there's a range of rights and, and we need to be conscious that it's many rights and not just one right of bodily intactness. So how do you see the child as an agent in these decisions? Because this is at the core of that legislation. Many conditions, we don't need to be making any diagnoses or, sorry, making decisions about action. And we are very happy to take on board young people, including young children's decisions about who they feel like they are. So I, I can think of examples where somebody has been quite clear as a four-year-old about who they felt they were this kid feels this and... Well, and also we're existing in a milieu now where in the past there would have been a lot of shame and stigma and, a, and an impulse by the medical profession to so-called normalise kids. And perhaps and we're now existing at a time where diversity is increasingly embraced complex not always not always not always yeah. not always and, and, and i think we shouldn't be romanticizing no. this space we're not just talking mm. about experiences in australia it's a global community that is concerned and we know that doctors in australia are talking with doctors overseas we know that doctors in australia go overseas and do training about how to do the surgeries we know there's a lot of things going on here mm. that don't get talked about or critiqued and I really hope it does come to an ethics committee where they actually tease out the ethics of what goes on. Because I think so for so long, so much is behind closed doors and the data is held and protected and not shared openly, that it's creating these, these assumptions when really it's the people who are living this every day. And that's the difference. Thank you so much for having this conversation um, and for bringing all of your experiences to the discussion. I think it's so vital. So thank you, Jenny Smith. Thank you, Agli Zavras Orr. Thank you, Sonia Grover. And thank you, Andrew Sinclair. And thank you to you. And if you're in Victoria, you have until the 18th of June to give feedback about that state's intersex protection system, as they describe it. This discussion was held as part of the public program of events for the forthcoming International Congress of Genetics in Melbourne. And big thanks to the Science Gallery Melbourne for having us. I'm Natasha Mitchell. Thank you for joining me on Big Ideas. You can follow us and find our podcast on the ABC Listen app. Share it widely. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.